Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and I like to think that this is the best place to get a review of the weekend's football action. This is where we debate the big issues, and not just them, but less relevant issues as well, like Carl Robinson and Charlton Athletic. In the studio today, I have Julian Lawrence, Tony Cascarino, and the excellent Stuart Robson, who's looking especially chipper today. Coming up, we'll be talking about Bournemouth's comeback against Liverpool and discussing the continuing institutionalized ills in football. But first, we head to the Etihad. Stuart, Manchester City and Chelsea. Mm. I had an interesting conversation last night with some people you might know who claim that if Kevin De Bruyne buries that shot, then it's over. Then City definitely win the game. Uh, Are they crazy or just ignorant? Um, well, you've made your mind up that it's one of those things. I would say if De Bruyne scores the goal, that it was going to be very difficult for Chelsea because I would agree that, with that. at that point, Manchester City were in control of the game. And for once, I would say Guardiola tactically had the better of Conte in the in the second part of the first half and the first part of the, the second half because he changed the position that De Bruyne was playing. He changed the position that David Silva was playing in the first half or the first 25, 20, 20, 25 minutes they matched systems so there was no space for anybody to play and then when he moved De Bruyne and he moved Silva slightly that's when Man City started to get more crosses into the box, they caused Cahill and Alonso lots of problems down the inside right channel uh, and it looked as though Man City were, were going to win the game, that's how I saw it and that changed everything when uh, Costa made the run Great first touch and a, and a brilliant right. goal. Cass, you're making a face. Is it because you disagree with Stuart? Mm. No, I just this is my face. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Cass, my point is that no. you, the, the way the way City play, and it's not as if they go two 0 up and all of a sudden Guardiola is going to design some uber catenaccio. Mm. And we've seen them concede late goals and concede chances. I don't necessarily believe that all of a sudden just simply being 2-0 up. It's not It's not their game. It's not the way they play. No. They're going to continue playing the same yeah. way because he believes it's it's the best way to play. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that. Also, I would have said that the chance even before mm. uh, with Aguero, when he skips past Courtois and Cahill clears it off the line, mm. another golden opportunity for City to go 2, maybe 3-0 up. I'm like you, Gab. I think they give you too many chances. And now they do get things right going forward in areas that they can be ever so dangerous. But there's no doubt that between Koloff, Stones and Otamendi, that any ball behind them that gets slipped down the side of them, they're in trouble. And all three goals were in a similar vein, where they're balls that split fullbacks and defenders. I know they didn't really play with fullbacks at the weekend, but them balls that go behind and Otamendi obviously gets caught very early but they would have conceded more chances I think I don't think it would have been over but I certainly felt Chelsea would have scored in that game I, I just I just don't think the defenders at City are good enough apart from Stones and so it wouldn't I, have I been over at 2-0 no it wouldn't have been over at 2-0 no and, and, I, and I do also have to question Sani and Jesus Navas at full backs you know at, at least at Chelsea Moses maybe not but Alonso is a more defensive minded than Navas and Sané, who Sané was so good going forward, I give him that. But defensively, I'm sorry. And, and if you're going to play, if you're going to play those two, Navas as the right wing back and uh, Sané as the left wing back, your two wide centre halves have to be really comfortable in the wide areas. Kolarov exactly. is a left back, so he's okay. But Otamendi is not comfortable playing on the right hand side of a back three, as it proved for the goal, as it proved when the Hazard skipped past the goalkeeper and, and, and should have scored. When he tried to anticipate and go in front of. Of uh, of Costa on the mm. second goal, and then Costa just it was too easy then to turn and then put that ball through for William who scores. Well, I'm going to turn to you, Stuart, because I think you have the most coaching background. So obviously, Pep Guardiola spends a lot of time on tactical movements and 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 whatnot. It also seems obvious to me that when you play that back three because of the way you play, you're going to have a lot of situations where you're not really defending collectively because you only have three guys back there, and you're going to defend individually and be dragged in positions where you're uncomfortable, just the nature of, of, of being undermanned when you throw so many people forward. Should he be doing better? Is there, is, is it, or is this just, just kind of something well, you have is, to accept this, because this the is, blanket is too short? I know we're going we're gonna to talk about Klopp later, but I think both Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp work a lot defensively on the pressing of the ball high up the field. But if that press gets beaten, then you have to do a lot of work when you are disjointed, when you're undermanned. How are you going to make the opposition go into wide areas? And can you force them away from the danger area? You know, when you're doing training sessions, quite often overload the attacking side, so the defensive side have to work harder. I'm not sure I see that they're doing too much of that work. Well, you, can, you keep can working you, at it. You can, and can you, you, but you can keep working at it, but 
Stones will still be 22 and, and inexperienced. Otamendi isn't going to turn into the, 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 the Danny Alves as opposed to sort of more... But of a, you can make them Colorado make better decisions. Fast. You yeah. can make them make better decisions you don't if think you work he works, week in, week out. See, you don't think he works enough on that? I don't see how you think you can make someone defend who's not quick enough, like, for example, Kolarov, and you're leaving space. If you're leaving space in behind a left-sided centre-half, Otamendi, they are in trouble. Otamendi got in trouble and so did Kolarov because they're left in one-on-one situations against guys that are far quicker than them and they've got space to run into. So there's obvious danger. I don't know how you coach to say to someone, well, I'm going to go and have a one-on-one against you, I'm going to leave space and I'm quicker than you. He'll get there. There's no way you're going to be able to stop him. That's where I, th- I see the problem for City. So is that all it is? If, if he had three Boatangs no. back there, he'd be fine? If you are going to play with the back three and you're going to play with two wide players, your two wing backs who are are attacking players, you've got to have very good defensive players in those wide areas. On the balance of their team, remember the, the, the Everton game? at the Etihad as well where mm. Lukaku scored when it was far too easy for him yes. and for Everton in transition mm. to get the ball back and then go and score and it was exactly the same for Chelsea the second goal is too easy the third goal is too easy it's Marcos Alonso just kicking the ball to Hazard I don't know it's the balance of that team with just Fernandinho in front of that back three with Sania and Navas who are wingers they're not fullbacks mm. they're wingers mm. It's just not enough, I think, defensively there to cover and to defend properly. Kolarov was one yard behind Hazard. He ended up five by the time he scored. One refereeing turning point, one obvious one, which I'm not sure how on board I am with it, but the David Luiz on Aguero in the first half, where people were saying, well, David Luiz should have been a straight red, denial of goal-scoring opportunity. I spoke with one referee who said that, no, actually, he made the right decision on that occasion because that's not a foul anywhere else on the pitch. What, it, on which ground? What, it's, it's not a foul to prevent someone to get the, to the ball. You wouldn't you wouldn't call it obstruction elsewhere on the pitch if that happens in the middle of the in the middle of the park. But that, it was near the middle of the park. Right, so he didn't so, call it. But that's I don't understand. I don't understand where where the foul is at makes a difference. Where Aguero goes for the ball, Luis is nowhere near the ball. Prevents Aguero from getting to the ball. Surely that's to, a foul to, every day. To it's obstruct not. a player or block a player off from running, you have to be within playing distance of the ball. Exactly. So and, you're capable of getting the ball. Within anywhere near no, playing distance that. of the ball. And that's an indirect free kick. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't so sure that Aguero could have, I think Aguero could have stayed on his feet. He wasn't that much of a contact. He, tried to, he went down very easily and tried to get David Luiz sent off, which he could easily have done. I mean, most referees would have sent him off. Is yeah. that why he didn't give it? Because Aguero, you think Aguero went down too easy? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'd go along with that, definitely. I think Aguero could stand his feet. So did he make the right decision for the wrong reason? Yeah, I suppose so. I disagree. I, and I, it's like the, the, the tackle from Rojo on, on, on Gray. It's not, it's not because Gay gets up straight away that you don't give a red. And it's not because Aguero maybe falls a bit theat- theatrically that you don't give a red either or far, I think. Because the foul is there, even if it's not the biggest of contact, there's a foul and, and uh, it prevents him from see, getting the ball. See, there are different levels of red cards, aren't there? I mean, what, yeah. some, I mean, Aguero's was so obvious later on mm. in the game. True. But, you know, there is a levels of red card. That is just borderline for me. Well, let's get to that, because obviously this happens at the end of the game. Again, for those who didn't see, Aguero's chasing the ball. David Luiz gets there first and he just kind of goes in and karate kicks him, I think, just above the knee. Uh, which then leads to the smelly. Nathaniel um, Chalaba is the first guy over, pushes away over the ground. Then Ianacho goes in like some, some lunatic, gets, gets really, really angry, and then it all kicks off, and then you have the little coda of uh, Fernandinho and uh, Cesc Fabregas. It's, all right, a couple things on this. One is I'm assuming you've all been involved in brawls. I'm guessing you more as an observer, uh, Stuart. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I thought this was pretty un-Pep-like behavior. Not not from Pep, obviously, but from a Pep team. Mm. I don't remember Bayern being involved in anything like this. I obviously, I remember what happened at the end of the Classico with, with, with Tito and the eye poke and whatever, but you know that is something that had been boiling and building for a very, very long time. Uh, and that was a long, long time ago. It seems strange to me that this is not, you know, it's not a Chelsea team with which there's a big historical rivalry. You don't have a, a Mourinho-Pep situation. You don't have all the aggro that went there. Does it seem unusual that it Are you suggesting that he hasn't quite got control or got his influence on the dressing room at the moment? Is that what you're suggesting? Maybe after three months, it's maybe not as, as not to the degree to which he would like. Because the reality is, now he's going to lose Aguero. Right? It's going to be what he's already missed three games. Games four minimum. We were worried that he was going to miss games through injury. Now that he, he's just missing games through suspension. He's going to miss Fernandinho, who I think is a really important player for them. Mm. 
it just seemed to me that there was a higher level of discipline from Pep teams yeah. in the past. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, they were more concentrated about killing the opposition with their passing and their movement and their tactical understanding. They just lost their head, was it? Yeah, I just don't think... I can't quite... Manchester City have had a problem over the last three years. Discipline with the tactics on the field when Pellegrini was the manager. And now it may be a little bit of ill discipline that Guardiola's got to stamp out with the players out in the field. See, Sergio takes it upon himself to make an unbelievably bad tackle, yeah? From that, it sets off chaos and mayhem. And players, when you've gone behind in a game, sometimes players like to do the fans' favourite and, you know, show their passion and desire and how, yeah, but how much it hurts. And players get caught up in it. We I see mean, this happen, but, I mean, I, I don't expect this to well, happen Sergio, from, from but, but, but the tackle's so bad, Gab, that the Chelsea players react, don't they? Because they see the tackle. They're in front of them. So the Chelsea players will react to that. And with that, skirmishes start, and then it gets overexcited. And just before that, hadn't Pep Guardiola had a problem with the Chelsea bench? So there'd been there'd been a little bit of animosity after the third goal went in, where everybody was unhappy with, with both sets of players. The Pep Guardiola was having a go at Conte's bench because he didn't like the way they celebrated. And sometimes the players follow the, the, the manager's lead. But this was just a terrible tackle from Aguero. Yes. What was previous as well between Aguero and Luis in Luis's first Stam at Chelsea, you know, when he stamped on him with the two feet in the cup game, I think it was maybe, or something like that. So well, they, they've been there we'll before, be and it was a frustrating, yeah. very frustrating game for yeah, but, but you know, first of all, I don't want, I hate, I hate, hate it when people use that word, the frustration when you do something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. This, this guy's a professional footballer. And the other thing, too, is it's not as if he's reacting to something that just happened, right? He's had time to think about it. So it seems to me an especially stupid decision if you're Sergio Aguero because the reality is you're more likely to be on the receiving end of punishment throughout your time in England that you know you're not going to be the one dishing it out you're not you know you're not Vinnie Jones here uh, or some kind of hatchet man uh, it's difficult for me to understand this loss of control from somebody who has kept his discipline and kept his control for so long the guy I understand even less frankly is Fernandinho when people do the whole post all right so he comes in defends a teammate the brawl goes he has a standoff with Fabregas yes we see Fabregas slap him but there's slap and there's slap, right? You can't tell me that getting hit like that causes you to continue and go on and on and on and continue choking him and whatever and continue squaring up to him when you know everybody's looking at you. And continue after he's been sent off. He still wanted to have a fight with Antonio Conte yeah. on the side of the field. He wanted to have a fight with, uh, with actually it was the, the, the Manchester City, the guy from the Manchester City medical staff who's trying to, to shove him down the, the tunnel. But again, this is not a straight reaction thing. Can, can you, I mean, you guys have been there. Sometimes we don't know. Have you ever done verbally? That, there might have been something said. Okay, but that's that's that, hypothesis. That adds to the problem. That just makes it a toxic cocktail. Have I been in these sort of instances where I've been sent off nine times? So I would have had a few times. It'd have been um, not fisticuffs, but uh, <laughs> some serious stuff goes on. I look. I've lost it on the field. I have done that on a spur of a moment and asking me why I did it. I don't know. Yeah, but, but my point with Fernandinho is it's not, it's, it's, not, it's not spur of the moment. It just keeps going and going and going. With yeah, that, with, well, with that fa- it's, it was like one of those slow motion car crashes. You see it. All right. So, so, well, so there's the obviously ver- look, there's a slapping, slight slap where he takes it disrespectfully, totally, Fernandinho, right? Okay, how hard do you say? Mate, doesn't make a difference. Right. It does make a difference. He sees it as, a, but, as disrespect. Yeah, he, he then goes to it. And then there's obviously some verbal, something said between the two of them and he keeps pushing him and pushing him and I think Cess he's going backwards and he probably knows that he has to totally take a back step out of this and um, it's it's a strange but, one but again you've got to be professional in yeah. these situations Fernandinho is now going to miss games he must have as you said he must have known everybody was watching him he must have known that he was going to get sent off for his actions why continue to do it? I would assume that with with, with Cess that he'll be part of the of the video process as well and you know, again, I don't think it was a violent strike, but if you raise your hands to, to an opponent, especially a Fernandinho, then, you know, odds are you'll get banned too. Is that, did he not to. get sent off because the referee and the assistants didn't see the slap? Yeah, I That's agree. why he didn't get sent off. Definitely. Not, but yeah. no, we, 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 have the, we, we can look at it on, on camera. Yeah, I did. But the referee I mean, probably didn't see it. The referee Chalabar. only has two eyes. Chalabar was the first player over to push down. Yeah, to be honest, I don't have a problem. I, I wish there would be like a common sense clause. And I would say Chalabar... I, I think that is a perfectly human reaction after what he witnessed, I and I, I really hope they don't go and ban him. Not that's going to make much of a difference. Same thing, frankly, with with Ianacho because he runs in like 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 some kind of maniac, like his underwear is on fire. But I assume maybe Ianacho was running; he was looking. He didn't see what happened before. 
and all he sees is Chalaba pushing, pushing his pushing well, him right yeah, to the ground. Yeah, of course, I can live with that. I wonder if maybe we wouldn't have been better off if he did it like in like, like they do in, in in ice hockey sometimes, and yet you know let the two young reserves go and fight it out, have Chalaba against Iannaccio, so nobody else has to get hurt, nobody else gets suspended. Fernandinho watches from a safe distance, and uh, and we avoid all this nonsense. It's eight wins in a row now for Chelsea. Mm. Um, you presume that this run's going to end. I mean. Surely nobody's going to win as many as 14 games like Arsenal did back when they had Cesc Fabregas playing for them, Julian. Yeah. Which I think was the last time they had they won 14 games in a row, right? Probably. The last time they won anything that mattered too, right? Probably. Okay, just checking. That was when Fabregas could run though, wasn't it? And defend. That's when he chose to run and defend. Mm-hmm. But we expect this run to end. Did we expect this run to end against maybe some kind of inferior opponent who just kind of sits and parks the bus and then... No, Chelsea I can't I, punch it in. I, I you thought, think the run's going to continue? I thought Man City got their tactics quite right in the first half of the game. No, 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 no. I know, but more realistically, most teams can't play the way Man City do. So I, I would expect this run of victories to end against an Everton, somebody like that, or they're playing West if Brom. You next. Allow, I think if you sit off Chelsea and allow them to play, they'll dominate the game. And they'll get, really? again, they keep switching the play. Because if you play with a back three and you play with your two wing backs as wide as they play with them, if you sit off, you'll keep, they'll keep switching the play. They get cross after cross into the box. That's where I think Chelsea would dominate sides and beat them four and five. The teams that would press them high up the field and stop them playing out from the back, like Spurs yeah. did, like Manchester City did for a, a first half. Like See, West Brom certainly can't play like this. No. They can't press them high. So No, I think you've got to try and get somebody on, the, 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 on top of Louise. For a start, you you must try and stop the ball being delivered from out back and how you both do. Both Spurs and Man City both did that. Yeah, yeah that's what you have to do because it gives you chances and occasion. Let's remember, City had a lot of chances in this game. You know, so they they are. Okay, but we're talking about. I mean, I'm, I'm more interested in establishing how way long forward. do you think how long yeah. do you think this run's going to? They're not going to play Man City next week or the week no. after and so on. I'm asking, when do we think this run of victories is is likely to end? I don't see it going on much much longer. I think there's defeats in there for Chelsea. Mm. I think there's there's evidence to look at. Because they've got one or two problems. Cahill can't play that left-sided centre-half position. He was isolated too much. He didn't make good decisions. He looked slow on the turn. He was just like Otamendi was and Kolarov was up the other end. Cahill actually had a terrible game. They, you know, in two two previous games you mentioned, they've slightly got away with it. And they're playing Spurs and yeah, they are. Exactly. But there, there, there seems that you know, I think you there are. Co- you spoke about coaching and people looking at evidence to see where they can maybe hurt Chelsea. I think there's enough evidence for other teams to even the likes of a West Brom who might not be able to do certain things, but can cause them problems. That's precisely what I said. Yeah. I, I, I think West Brom, somebody like that, is more likely to to end the run of victories. Moving on to Bournemouth and Liverpool, another title contender, or or so we thought. I'm going to try to be nicer here because Cass off the air told me that, you know, there's too much disagreement. We should all get along better. So I'll just say this. As I saw it, Stuart, mm-hmm. Liverpool are 3-1 up. Everything is cruising, and they're doing well despite the absence of Coutinho and Matip. And there really is no excuse for surrendering a two-goal lead against Bournemouth in the last 15 minutes. If that happens, I expect the manager to get very, very angry and then to get very, very cold and rational and fix the situation. This is two points dropped. This is three points dropped, actually. Well, when you look at the goals that went in, there's so many times that Liverpool could have stopped them. You know, even the first goal when the ball's just played down the side, the defender, Lovren, sees it early enough. He gets into position and then his clearance isn't good enough. His header, then Milner makes a mistake as he's running back. He gets the angle of his recovery. By the way, if I may jump in on the Milner mistake, if that had been Mr. Alberto Moreno... everyone would be going mad. But it's James Milner and we all like him, so that's okay. Some of the positions they took up for the other couple of goals, they weren't tactically that bad, but they didn't attack the ball when it came into the box. People didn't recover when the the shot went in against the goalkeeper. Lucas was standing there. So are are these bad decisions or bad players? In this or, or players who play badly, they played badly for that last twenty minutes, or they made bad decisions. It, the so, positional play wasn't wrong. It was. I mean, what about when the ball comes out of the box and Wilshere beats Origi, <laughs> Origi in the air? Yeah. I mean, like Origi's got to. Well. That's Origi's got to do better than that. You go to three-three, and then they get a long throw. He hurls it into the box. It gets cleared. Now it gets rolled back. You can see the obvious ball is going to be rolled back to Cook. Where he from Ibe, yeah. Yeah, from Ibe. But I rolls it back to him. Now he's got an eternity to shoot. Cook. He shoots and Callas drops the ball. Okay, and the rebound, it goes in. But the pressing has to come. You have to get someone to that ball far well, quicker. Was that a case? That's I'm, the fourth I'm, I'm, goal I'm, not, I'm not being funny here about, about Steve Cook. Is that you know, they look at him and they say, All right, I know he scored that great goal earlier, but 
is Steve Cook, right? This isn't necessarily one of the people we've, it's not Callum Wilson, it's not Wilshire, it's not one of the people we've identified as a danger man. It's this guy who's who's a defender, basically, and he's just there like, let's sit off him or whatever. It's not even that. I I think Liverpool have got no confidence in the defensive side. When things start to go wrong defensively, that there's not there's not players there that are going to really push people on get tight and do that they can do it higher up the field because that's what they do in training every day the pressing game that's what I keep hearing in training they press and press and press but once we talked about Manchester City not doing enough work when the ball gets past that press and I don't think Liverpool probably do enough work as a back four and as and with the two midfield players in front of them and I think Origi is lazy Origi is lazy when he loses that ball against Wiltshire and he's lazy on that fourth goal because he's the one coming to be 2v1 against Ibe on the yeah, right hand side with Van Ibe, Ibe rolls the ball back to Cook and Origi then should go and go straight on to Cook and put the pressing and prevent him from crossing or shooting instead doesn't do anything doesn't make that effort and after that Cook shoots and then Carlos obviously drops the ball do you remember the ball then, that Origi gave again, uh, just before when they were attacking Liverpool and he tries to slip it just inside mm. and yeah. they rob them of possession and then the Bournemouth are fully straight onto Liverpool that that happened in the last 20 minutes about three or four times really bad play and maybe they're tired maybe, maybe physically because they press so high mm. for so much because they run all of them so much maybe you get to the point where at the end you know, physically you'll be struggling and you don't have that extra uh, desire to make the effort and you, maybe you can't, you just can't well, do Cook it. Cook had know, an eternity for the last guy. It was Van Eldrum was the closest one to him. He doesn't yeah. He doesn't get to him. But Cook has, takes a touch, takes a touch and then you're thinking, well, someone's going to come in a minute. It's too late. And OK, but but you, you, when you watch better. the game, you sense the fear. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. In that last 15 minutes, you sense the fear I've of the players. Eddie Howe came out afterwards and, you know, he credited his substitutions. That's fine, but... I don't know what else he's supposed to say because this this guy Ryan Fraser or whatever his name is, is yeah. it Ryan Fraser? Ryan Fraser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, this little guy comes on and all of a sudden <laughs> he looks like he looks like a combination of Messi and Pat Nevin. All, all credit to him, but I had no clear idea who this guy was or what he could do. I don't know. You guys probably all. But the point is, this guy oh, comes no. in and he wreaks such incredible havoc. And, you know, we, we can credit Eddie Howe, but then also point out that you. Gave up three goals at home, and or was it was it just one of those things where the, the guys came on and the positivity well, was there, and Liverpool made a lot of mistakes. Ibe came on, and uh, yeah. obviously the, between the two of them, they caused havoc. And the lad Fraser just sat in a pocket, and he got in. Yeah, he's got his ball in between. But I was players. so impressed with how confident this guy is. Yeah, and well for the penalty as well. Let's remember the ball for the penalty. Yeah, Alan Wilson. I mean, the, the, just just the the the, the directness the. And you know, I'm not. I don't know if he has the tools to become a, a decent Premier League footballer. But I was just so impressed with with his mentality and, and and the way he. I mean, is that something we should credit Eddie Howe for? For saying like, all right, this guy's got is in the right mindset to go and make a difference. He had to make changes. Whether he thought he was going to go and do that. Yeah, well, but presumably yeah. people on his bench were better than, than than this guy. The front players on. You're not going to make defensive substitutions. So the, the the players he had on the bench were the were the forwards, and they're the ones he put on. So I, and he put two up front, and it just caused Liverpool more problems. But Liverpool should have dominated the game. They should have killed the game. I'm not talking about defensively. They should have killed the game off higher up the field. Eddie Howe saying, yeah, substitution worked, but he was forced to make that one, the Fraser one. He right. didn't choose yes. to make it. He was but forced to make it. G- give him credit because all three of his substitution, a phobie came on as oh, well, and he had a glorious choice. chance. Yeah, yeah. All three of them had an impact in the game. That's what you're paid as a manager to do. So, yeah, Eddie got it spot on. Somebody asked me, I know obviously he was injured, but he's back now. There's something wrong with, with Clavin? Does he not, has he gone off him? Anybody know? Is there a story there? No, no. I don't know. No, maybe, but... Just, just wondering. A lot of discussion of Carius. I always get a little bit uncomfortable when people who are not goalkeepers go and criticize goalkeepers technique or positioning and whatever what i wonder about about carries is it, that there seems to be a school of thought now saying that like oh well should go he should go back to Mignolet. i mean sure you've you've been there are goalkeepers really just kind of like a species apart in the idea that like well you know now if you go back to Mignolet, you hurt carries confidence and whatever else uh, when I was coaching, the, the, the players that I didn't really like to get involved with, and I didn't want to get involved with too much, was the goalkeepers. Because you don't understand them. I don't understand the way they worked. I wanted them to work more with the mm-hmm. team, but the goalkeeping coach said they've got to be with the goalkeeping coach all the time. And that's one of the problems, I think, that's happening with goalkeepers. Now, when they make runs out, that wasn't the case with Carriers, but when goalkeepers come out, their penalty area, we saw when Ibrahimovic plays it over yeah. Stecklenburg, they make bad decisions because they don't work enough with the back four. Goalkeepers 
are a strange mentality. Uh, and when they make mistakes, they're liable to make two or three mistakes for the next couple of weeks because their confidence goes down so much. I feel like we need to have a goalkeeper on the panel to be able to speak to the Well, they take everything so personally. If, if an outfield player does... You just go generalise about hundreds of goalkeepers the world over. You have to generalise. How else are you going to explain goalkeeper's acts? I mean, if I look at him as a keeper, my first two thoughts are Karius. He's, he's not great on crosses because I see him flapping all the time and he's not great at holding the ball, which isn't a good start for a goalkeeper, is it? Because things bounce off him. And he's done it more than one occasion. If you look at all the games he's played for Liverpool... I mean, to me, it did seem like a curious signing mm. in the summer because, you know, you gave Mignolet that new deal. I don't think Mignolet is any great shakes, personally. But he wasn't I the reason it. that Liverpool haven't been a, a great defensive side. Mignolet wasn't the real problem. It's the whole, it's the whole defensive side of the game. I mean, the, thing, the only thing that bugs me a bit about that is, like, do you think Jurgen Klopp is at training with his staff and they see training and Caius maybe is rubbish at training and Mignolet is great and you think he still thinks, I'm going to play Caius, even if he's rubbish at training. Surely Klopp sees something in him every day of the week at training that makes him say, OK, he's our best keeper, so I'm going to play him. He wouldn't play his worst keeper of the yeah. two well, or the three. Surely see, not. Julian makes a really good point there because we all know, being part of a football club, we know where our number one is. I'm sure when Stuart was at Arsenal, well, OK, it might be blatantly obvious it was Seaman, but we know, don't we? It's Pat Jennings when I was playing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you do. You're at a football club. We've got Kevin Hitchcock at Chelsea. We had Dave Besson. You know, you pretty much knew who your number one was. Sorry, Hitchy. You know, you knew. Surely Klopp must be 100% but, yeah, co- convinced that that's his number one. All right, so Bournemouth will be just fine. I think it's a testament that they'd spend more money this summer. I don't know that they always spend their money very wisely or intelligently. I, I, in fact, I don't really like their recruitment policy, even though one of the people involved with it is somebody we, we know and like. But Why don't you like it? What's what's wrong with it? What do you think is wrong with it? I you don't think Wilshire was a good signing? He's proving a good signing, I think. I don't like Wilshire. Okay, Jordan Ibe, I think he's proving... I think that's a lot of money to spend for a Jordan Look, Ibe. They might have overpaid. That doesn't mean the signing was not a good signing. Everybody's overpaid for yeah. players. Are you joking? So, that's the whole point of a signing policy is how much you pay for them. No, so the whole point is your player is doing well for you. No, the whole point is what you pay for him. Well, if, that's the whole point. You 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 can't you can't separate the two, the, the the two things. Yeah, but the most important thing, you know, is that him playing well for you. No, the important the most important thing is what you paid for him, so that then you don't get in trouble with the Premier League's financial fair play right, okay. um, policy and get a big giant fine. Right. Yeah. Okay. But but don't think about the fine. Just think about what you no, want. Don't from, think about it. No, but don't, what don't you want from your signings? Is them doing well for your team? We're joined now by uh, Gregor Robertson, uh, who writes the Journeyman. Um, is that a reference to 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 yourself, Gregor? Are you the journeyman? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I had uh, five or six clubs, so I don't know whether that classifies me as a journeyman. Or I not, think but... you need double figures to be a journeyman, yeah, right? So, is that that Stuart you confirmed? Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at least ten. Yeah. So Gregor had a had a chat with uh, with Carl Robinson, who uh, formerly of MK Dons, who uh, is the new Charlton manager. Now Charlton seemed to be like an absolute cesspool of a club with a cesspool of an owner who none of the fans like. Would you say that's a fair characterization of the environment that Carl Robinson goes into? Absolutely. I mean, he, he, he's come into the into the role and, and it's been a bit of a charm offensive. I think they've hired a, a PR company to help with that. He said that his meetings with the owner were, were very positive. And so he's, he's obviously trying to kind of bridge the gap between the fans and the club, but I think he's on a hiding to nothing mm. in, in that sense. But he's young, energetic, bordering on hyperactive. Actually, he's kind of <laughs> he's so full of beans. So I think he'll I think he'll get a good reaction from the players. But I think no matter what happens, there'll always be the animosity between the between a large part of the fans and and the ownership. Gregor, I spoke to Carl Robinson about ten days ago and talked to him about the fact that his biggest problem is trying to get the fans on his side because the team was suffering. But the hatred towards the owner is so bad that it just feels that every home game is a toxic atmosphere. Well, yeah, I mean, there was only just less than 5,000 fans there, which, which just kind of makes the, makes the valley seem hollow and empty. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, he was speaking, he was speaking up. He did a lot of interviews in the last week and really positive. He's a positive guy. But I think, speaking to fans, they, they, they appreciate that and, they, and they'll support him. But not, for a lot of them, that that won't bring them back to the to the, to the ground, you know. Has he got any assurances from the owners that they won't meddle with the the team selection and the the tactics that he uses? Owner, owner, owner. owner. It's only Roland, right? Yeah, only Roland. Yeah. Then has he got any assurances? Yeah, that? that's what he said. Yes, 
don't know if you saw the emails that came out last week mm. that had been sent to, to Chris Powell in 2014, which is kind of almost almost telling what team to pick and, and asking uh, asking why he wasn't players from, playing players from his network. So I think that's in the past. I do think they have learned, maybe realised that they can't just throw them players from, from his other clubs because they're not good enough. So I think, and, and in the summer, Russell Slade did get a little bit of backing in terms of being allowed to sign players who who are uh, known known at that level. Russell Slade even was the first manager who who got experience in English football at all. So I think they've learned some lessons, but for fans, too much water's gone under the bridge, and I think really they still expect the first sign of trouble, another knee jet, re- jet reaction, and they'll be on to the ninth manager. They're only two points under the um, the playoff positions, aren't they? So it's not they're still exactly. if they put on a good run. And with the new manager and etc., it's still possibly a very good season there, and then maybe go Absolutely. back up. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I spoke to people from uh, like that board level on, on Saturday, and, and they said it was just purely down to results, getting rid of Slade. But I mean, the, the league is that tight that, it's, as you say, if you if you lose a few games, then you, you look like you're you're flirting with relegation. You won a couple, as has happened since since Slade left, and and they're on the verge of the playoffs. So. I think Robinson will energise him, and I think if he, he's also hinted that he's going to get some backing in January, so we'll see whether that happens. Maybe he can get more can... players from the network. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I have a question here about about Carl Robinson, which I don't really understand. Now, <clears throat> you have to educate me, Gregor. That's why I read your column. I don't really follow the lower divisions at all. He had a pretty good reputation. You you refer to him as a um, as sort of a, a bright young thing. So he he leaves MK Don six weeks ago. And since then, he said he turned down three different jobs. I'm assuming this is this is something he told you, right? Not something yeah, you made up. Was, that was what was hinted, yeah. Okay, so... Uh, I mean, there was a lot of speculation with other jobs as well. And, and those jobs <laughs> did, did seem like they would be more appealing. That's, that's well, that, that, that's the is, thing. What yeah. kind of jobs did he turn down if the if, if he chooses Charlton? Because this does not seem like a like a healthy situation where, you know, even Russell Slade, who does relatively well, he, he lets go after 21 games... I mean, were, were, were these other jobs in in Albania or something, or like? What? <laughs> well, we don't. I, I don't know exactly what those jobs were, unfortunately. But um, you didn't ask him. Really? No. Well, no. Even does anybody here but, know what jobs he turned down? Three. Well, he was. No, no. <laughs> what jobs he says he turned down? No, I, I am curious because this does not seem like a good job. But it seems to be that lot man, a lot of managers say that you know Geoff McCarthy. Oh, yeah, I've, I mean, I've been offered one or two jobs, you know, and, and I've turned those down. Oh, but this one's <laughs> a great one. I, I, I think it'd be very rare when a manager goes and says, "I haven't been offered anything. It's my last chance. It's an opportunity. Yeah. I've got yeah. to take it." <laughs> yeah, but didn't he do well? At, but what I don't understand though, weren't MK? Well, didn't he do well at MK Dons? Isn't that why people thought he was he was a yeah. promising manager? He did until very recently. Yeah, I mean, and, and he was linked. He was linked with Leeds in the past. Exactly. And, and, uh, a few, a few bigger Blackburn as well. A few years ago, I think. <laughs> Talk about clubs for appealing owners. Yeah, yeah. Blackburn, you Leeds, can, Charlton. You can, yeah, stay, no, you can <laughs> over, yeah, overstay your welcome, can't you? And sometimes it's the right time to move. And he probably overstayed his time at uh, MK Dons because hey, his stock has fallen, hasn't it? Gregor Robinson, thank you so much. Your interview with Carl Robinson is in the game. Thank you. Last week in our debate segment, we talked about this uh, hideous story about child abuse in uh, in, in, in football. Unfortunately, the story is not going away, or maybe you can see a positive in it in the sense that more people are encouraged to to come forward. There was a big story about Chelsea and the fact that they reached a settlement with uh, with a guy who'd been playing at the club and who was a victim of abuse in the 1980s. This made headlines because as part of it, they signed a gagging order. Chelsea, Matthew Syed writes about this. Uh, Chelsea said that um, and the, the, the settlement was reached two years ago. Uh, in 2014, uh, even though the abuse took place, obviously, two owners ago. Chelsea said that, you know, it was understandable that they would put a gagging order at the, uh, at the time. I don't know that there is too much to debate here, personally, at the risk of being excoriated. I can understand why Chelsea felt, well, we're paying this guy money, and in lieu of that, and in lieu of, you know, in, in exchange for this, we can go and, and demand that we don't talk about it, that we don't attract more negative publicity. If they thought that they could get away with it, then I can see why they did it. Uh, I don't think it necessarily covers them in glory. More serious is the fact that they say that they didn't go back and investigate cases at the time. They said it was difficult. And I was wondering about that. It strikes me that at least when they realized there was a problem like that, at what is still their club, even though it was different people in charge, 
they should have made more of an effort. I don't think, I'm assuming there's nobody who wants to disagree with that. No, no, no. The one story I found really disturbing was the story from last night. I don't have the guy's name. I don't like saying his name, even if I knew it. Um, this guy who was a youth coach at Southampton was a convicted child molester, and he gets a job back in football at this place called Fleet Town. What I find disturbing here is that they did not run a, back, a background check on him, uh, and it's not clear that they were required to run a background check on, on, on this guy. And what year was this? Well, he was let go yesterday, so I'm assuming... So it's, it's, it's recent then? It's, it's now, yeah. Obviously, they did the right because thing when they found out. Every academy, every, um, every child... Uh, I, I don't work, imagine... You, you, ha you, have to, you have to take... You have to take well, that. I want to ask you about this because obviously you worked, yeah. as, you worked as a teacher as well, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. right? Yep. And that was in the 1980s, or sorry, 1990s. 1990s, yeah. You had, I, to, you had to pass the, uh, whatever the, 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 the legislation is, you know, and they do a check on you. There's, a, there's something called yeah, the CRB. CRB, yeah. Yeah, it's the same thing if you hire like a nanny or, mm. or, or a babysitter. Yeah. It, and it's certainly the case in football now. Any, any academy, you have to have a CRB mm. check. The only way you can describe how that's happened is total negligence mm. for that to be allowed to go well, forward and happen. I just, I'm Rob, they knew about it, but they still thought it was, a, you know, Guy was, I don't know. Are you saying I'm pretty sure they did not know about it? You're not suggesting that they no, did not know about it? Like, there seemed to, to be a lot of cover up in this story, like the story, similar no, stories I think, before uh, in this country. For me, it sounds like laziness. Mm. The only way this guy has got through the, the loopholes is that there's been negligence and people haven't well, done their jobs properly. This is, him this is a, what's for extraordinary. Him to sign a contract as a youth coach, he has, yeah, in the so contract, so he has yeah. to be, you know, CRB checks. CRB checks. Or so, not. Oh no! Surely you can't sign a contract if you hadn't been checked before. <laughs> they said they weren't required to do it, and they really? didn't do it. That, that's what's extraordinary. Yeah. Because I mean, even if you if you, if you hire a childminder, and it's not like you have to pay for it. If if I'm a if I'm a childminder, I have to go and I have to present a CRB yeah. check and a police mm -hmm. check to make sure that you know I'm not a terrorist or or, or whatever. So, so I, I guess there's more ugliness. I mean, my personal take is that it's probably best that all the stuff emerges. And that we can take a look at our laws and our regulations that are in place, and we can move on. In parallel with this, there was a story on Saturday. There is a story which is, <clears throat> I'm not going to say that it's, it's linked, but it, it still involves abuse uh, of a different nature. Um, there's a piece by Ollie, Saturday's paper, about a gentleman by the name of, uh, of George Blackstock, who's now in his mid-40s. And he's from Northern Ireland. He was a trainee at Stoke, um, I guess in the, the mid to late 80s. And he talked about how he was traumatized by effectively what used to be called hazing in my time, but basically abuse from, from older teammates, senior pros. In one specific instance, uh, they would uh, rub deep heat uh, onto a goalkeeping glove and insert it in his anus. Now, it comes down to personal experience, whatever sports or whatever, if you've been a member of a fraternal organization or whatever, there are certain, I guess they try to call them bonding rituals, um, some of which border on some I level. I think it's called a bullion. I think that's what it's called. Yes, I, I think that, that is. Football has been rife with bullying for years. Uh, you talk about, you, you have a, a story involving a pink vibrator cast that well, you write about, about in your book. book. Yeah, well, when I was playing my final game for Crockham Hill, where the lads who I'd known and are still all friends of them today had basically stuck a pink vibrator on the table before the game and everyone joked in the dressing room, well, you're going to get a leaving present. And I remember playing the game and it was on my mind. And How excited I you? asked our coach to be substituted 10 minutes before the end which he duly did. And did you really think they were going to... <laughs> well, I... How old were you at the time? 19. So I remember coming off and getting into the dressing room quickly, but the game ended and I was in the showers and they all bundled in, tipped, tipped me upside down. But it was all a game. It never actually happened. Well, the, but the, the, it, it, it this, was... Look. This is also a bit different because yes. this is kind of, however inappropriate... Yeah. This is in... It's a celebration. Cass is leaving us. Yeah. This is the, this guy, George Blackstock, no, I mean, if exactly. his allegations are, are, are correct, he was subjected to this. He was at the club. Those people were his senior pros. Those were his teammates. It was a continuing thing. Yeah, well, I, I totally agree with what Stuart said. Bullying in football has reached incredible levels. And I've been part of dressing rooms where mm. it's got to a dangerous... Was it worse back in the day, do you think? Oh, yeah, I, 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 I think I, far I, more happened. Yes, definitely. I was uh, about 13 when I used to train with Arsenal Reserves because I had different school holidays to the other schools because I went to a private school, as you keep reminding me. So I'd have, a, <laughs> I'd have an extra, extra week off. So I used to go 
and I used to, I loved the football going in there because I was highly thought of at the time at 13 I was training with the reserves I dreaded every moment of when we weren't on the training field because you knew that you were going to be asked to do stupid things you were going to be bullied from the moment you turned up you were going to have the mickey taken out of you if, and I, I, I spoke to one ex-player and we, we talked about our experiences at Arsenal he had he didn't play that many times for us, but Brian McDermott said he hated every minute of his time at Arsenal because of the way he was bullied and, and, and made fun of. And he, he was a first-team player. Let's get it right. It's many dressing rooms all over the country. We'd have similar stories to what mm. Stuart has experienced, I've experienced, and in other sports as well. Let's not forget that mm. this is just what was considered banter, but you could argue that it's banter, banter of a level that goes way beyond... and enters the arena of bullying and some people get very very affected and rightly so by it but the, the biggest bullying in football is not just about off the field stuff it's to try and undermine players on the field to, to, yeah. to ruin their confidence on the playing yeah. field I saw the worst incident of that you may have been playing I was playing for Coventry at Highfield Road against Chelsea three or four of the Chelsea players gave Graham Lasseau the worst stick I've ever seen he's playing for the same team the abuse he got that day was unreal. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Graham, got, Graham to, got that regularly at Chelsea in the training ground. To be clear on this, though, and I think we, we need to go just to, mm. to take it yes. back, Graham Lasseau in that game was an adult. That's workplace mm. bullying, if you want. Mm. doesn't take a genius to figure out who would have been responsible for that <laughs> in that game. I mean, I'm not saying it's right, but that is in a different category yes. to this 16-year-old kid from mm. Northern Ireland who goes across yeah. the water to Stoke. And he puts up with this. Now, it should be said that these are his claims. He's taken this to court. The uh, uh, the, the 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 court ruled in favor of uh, of Stoke and the goalkeeper who was uh, who was accused of this. Um, the court said they didn't find that Blackstock was consciously dishonest, but they said basically they weren't able to um, they weren't able to to prove to prove the facts. Um, do we have a general sense, though, that the situation in this regard is is getting a little better? And what what I mean by getting a little better, there is a big difference, maybe for the wrong reasons, but 6 to 15, 16, 17-year-old kids at football clubs are assets to that football club. They're worth a lot more money than they were in the past. They probably, many of them probably already have agents and people who have a stake in them. They probably have access to more education and more information and more resources out there. Do we think that sort of this, you know, ritual initiation bonding type stuff has toned down compared to the past? I would imagine it's toned down yes. somewhat. But I, I, I go back to to another story where when Wimbledon got relegated and Terry Burton was the manager, I was the head coach, um, and, and then we we joined after they got relegated. We then spoke to the players. Why did they think they got relegated? And one of the players, the goalkeeper, in fact, I told you I didn't like goalkeepers. <laughs> he said the reason that Wimbledon got relegated is because the players, had, the young players, the apprentices, never did any jobs, couldn't clean their boots and wouldn't go and get the balls when they booted in the forest. I remember this. He didn't actually just say this to you. He said this in an interview as well. Yeah. And But but, but this takes me to, I remember your, your buddy Niall Quinn talking about when Sunderland got relegated, or, or, or maybe just when they were just generally awful. You know, a lot of it had to do with the fact that before, when it was full of English people, they'd go and they'd lock, they'd have lock-ins on their way back from away trips at pubs, and then after a while, the the balance of power shifted between foreign players and said, "No, actually, you know what? I don't want to sit here and like go and drink myself silly with you, Niall, and 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 you, whoever the goalkeeper was at the time. I actually kind of want to go home and hang out with my family, or I want to go watch a film or read a book." I, so th th there is a sense of bonding. I mean, bonding in any team context is, is essential. Well, right? that's it, it's that dangerous line of bonding and banter that can go over to being abusive and affect the team. You know, the bottom line is you're trying to win together, but people love to deflect in a dressing room, don't mm. they? There's a lot of deflecting going on, finger pointing, because if someone feels they're slightly under pressure, they sometimes use the bullying tactic, which I've seen in dressing room, that makes them feel better. And also, they were brought up with that. They, these players that we're talking yeah. about in the 80s, in the 70s, they were getting that and maybe worse. And they would they would always say that, hey, we got far worse than you. I must have heard that a hundred times in my career. What we got, we got far worse than you, you boys. Now. You have to toughen up. This is part of your yeah. toughening up yeah. experience. It was yeah. a load of rubbish. 
enough of this nonsense. Time for some quick hits. I will explain the concept once again to Stuart because uh, sometimes he gets oh, a little I bit forgetful. But I-, I will ask you a question. You will have 20 seconds to answer. After 20 seconds, you will hear this sound effect. And after 25 seconds, you will hear this sound effect. And then I will start shouting at you because you're taking too long and boring everybody. Manchester United take the lead, dominate for stretches, and then give away a stupid penalty in two points. Jose Mourinho is grumpy as a result and complains of a double standard. Meaning that when they were playing badly and winning, they were okay with it. But now they're playing well and not winning, and people are having a go at him. Stuart, you love Jose. You're totally sympathetic with everything he says, right? Once again, it's the media ganging up on him, right? Uh, no, that's not the case this time round. I, I used to love Jose Mourinho. I think in the last year he's shown that he's trying to manage through the media rather than managing the players and managing on the training field. His team aren't as tactically good as they once were. Yes, they played quite well, but he's making mistakes on substitutions. He's not getting his tactics absolutely right every week. So I'm not sympathetic. He's a professional. Did it in 20 he, seconds or less. He yeah. Knew in his head. He's got yeah. Also, I'm not also not convinced that they played that well relative no. to the previous games uh, against violent. Everton. Speaking of that game, the referee had what you might call a shocker. Cass, uh, the Rojo on Gay, the Barry on Ibrahimovic. Please explain. Stick well, up for referees. The referee, I saw the worst refereeing performance on Friday night at Forest with, against Newcastle. He was dreadful, and it was pretty much on comparison against Everton. The Rojo incident, no-brainer, straight red, two-footed off the ground. Um, I think the Gareth Barry incident just before where he didn't give him the yellow card, he didn't get the red card, which he should have got. I'm friends with uh, uh, some refereeing nerd types, and uh, they suggest that some of this had to do with the fact that Oliver was upset that the big game on Saturday went to Taylor and it somehow rattled him. I would have thought after seeing Taylor's performance, he would have said, ha, 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 I'm in the lead now, I just don't want to screw this up, and I'll be fine. (laughs) Tottenham Hotspur beat up Swansea, Dele Alli takes a humongous dive, and Christian Eriksen is great again. Julian, do you want to praise Spurs or do you want to lambast Ali or maybe even defend him as I've heard some foolish people no, try to do? I go for both. I think Spurs played really well, a bit in the continuity of what they, saw in, they did in the first half against Chelsea and then they, there was a lot of movement, there was a lot of intensity. I like that. And for Dele Alli, I've got, I've got no words apart from how disgraceful it was and, and I just hope he never does it again, which I'm not sure he won't. I just wonder, like, do you need to do that? Against Swansea, I mean, you know that at some point. How in your in your head do you think? And um, you've played at obviously a higher level than me. How do you think in your head that you go in there, you see Kyle Norton, and you think, okay, I'm just going to go down? How <laughs> how is that even processing in your head? Who who? Because he's so think, clever that he knows that John Moss is so far away that he won't be able to see it. But you know, last week last week we had that debate with Corey as well about the Pogba and Mark Noble thing, where Pogba dive and got that free kick and etc. and but you could have, you could see why he, he avoided, he sort of avoided and fell. Right. But why is Dele Alli doing? It's just I don't understand it at all. Ridiculous. Arsenal demolish West Ham five one, and Alexis Sanchez is out of this world. And I don't care that his third goal was offside because it was so special and fun to watch. Stuart, this is where you have to say nice things about <laughs> Wenger again. Absolutely, Arsenal were magnificent against a very poor West Ham team. It has to be said, but their movement, their fluidity, Monreal defensive organization. Uh, yes, they didn't need to be that good defensively. They had a little period just after half time where West Ham got back into the game, but. Arsenal look a good side at the moment and Alexis Sanchez to play him through the middle has been a genius move by Wenger. Why has it waited? Why has it taken him two years to do it? Because he had Giroud and other guys are natural Still got Giroud. West Bromwich Albion beat Watford and swoop up to seventh place in the table with Matty Phillips stealing the show. At least I thought he did. I thought he played really, really well. Uh, Cass, he doesn't seem to be a typical Pulis type. In fact, this team has a bunch of guys who aren't stereotypical Pulis types in my opinion. Uh, how good is he and how good can West Brom be? Well, I think West Brom was surprising us all. I mean, Tony's always managed to play a number of centre-halves in his lineup. Um, sometimes puts them in midfield, but you could argue his back fours are all really centre-halves of some level. Matty Phillips is a quick wide man who's got the ability to come inside, and every now and again he'll sit one in the top corner, and he seems to be thriving. I mean, James McLean was doing really well on the left side, and James, uh, Matty's coming in and done better. Who's better, Matty Phillips or Andros Townsend? Um, Matty Phillips. After six straight defeats, Alan Pardew's Crystal Palace defeats Southampton. And then what does Parge do? He goes and he thanks Steve Parrish for protecting him since, quote, well, Palace's other owners don't know much about football. Um, Julian, your thoughts on this? And did you reach the same conclusion I did when he talked about owners not knowing much about football? He was actually referring to Steve Parrish and the fact that he's still in a freaking job. Yeah, 
I agree with you, Gab. I thought the same, but what I thought was even most ridiculous is those thumbs up that they exchanged in front of the whole television and that Pardew turned around from his bench, looked at Parrish and went thumbs up and Parrish went thumbs up to you, my friend, as well. And they're both, they're both rubbish and it's not long before he gets sacked anyway. You really believe that? No, I don't. I don't. He's going to be there forever, isn't he? Yeah, but I think he should have got sacked because they've been dreadful in 2016 despite that win. But you have to say that. Gab, one for you. We didn't get to see it live in the UK, but I understand that there was a rather quite big and important game in Spain this weekend. That's right. It was uh, El Clásico between Barcelona and Real Madrid. Um, And I wrote an excellent column on it in the game, which I invite you all to read. Very, very good. Um, Even if you say so yourself. Especially because I say so myself. (laughs) No, if finished 1-1, so Real Madrid's lead stays at 6 I thought that this was all about Andres Iniesta and Sergio Ramos. And what I love about it is that this is like one of those sort of telenovelas where the same characters come back. And sometimes it's the it's the supporting cast who outshines uh, the superstars. Iniesta came on at the hour mark. Um, I thought changed the game. Um, it was absolutely devastating. Made that midfield, lubricated that midfield, I think is how I put it so excellently in my piece. And Sergio Ramos did what he does. He just had his highs and lows during the game and then... Boom, 90th minute, a header, horrendous set piece marking. But um, I think you go back, he did it in the Champions League final, he did it in the Super Cup, and uh, and he does it again. So six points, and I do think there's going to be another twist in the, uh, in the Liga title race. Right, that's all we've got time for today. Many, many, many thanks to my excellent guest today, Julian Lawrence, Tony Cascarino, Stuart Robson, and Gregor Robertson. Remember, it's just £12 for a 12-week trial if you want to sign up for the actual paper where you get to read all this great writing and Matthew Syed and Henry Winter and the list goes on and on. And my personal favorite, George Colkin. Uh, Just search The Times online. Please press that subscribe button on wherever you choose to download your podcast and leave a review on iTunes if you're listening on an Apple device, but only if it's a good review. Please do not leave bad ones. Uh, We're going to be back next week. Bye-bye. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. Julian, just bet that Chelsea will win the next three games. West Brom at home, Sunderland away, Crystal Palace away. If he doesn't, he's going to pay the entire bill for the game podcast Christmas lunch.